This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The World Today. I'm Sally Sara. This Thursday, will the latest shooting tragedy spur the US to do something about gun laws? Even if it just saves one life and it, because it's an updated background checks bill or an expansion of extremist protection orders or anything like that, I mean, this is democracy. This system is made to force us to compromise. And it's five years since the Uluru Statement. Now, with the new government in Canberra, there are renewed hopes for Indigenous recognition in the Constitution. First up today, power bills and millions of Australian households and small businesses are set to be hit by further cost of living pressures with electricity bills tipped to soar. The Australian energy regulator has decided to pass on hefty increases to the benchmark power price as things such as coal and gas become more expensive. It's likely to add hundreds of dollars a year to power bills for households and small businesses. Catherine Gregory reports. Every time her electricity bill goes up, pensioner Penny Leamhouse feels the pinch and she has to make choices. I've noticed with myself that I'm making more and more cutbacks. Some of the things I do is restrict the amount of time I'm using my oven. So, for example, if I'm cooking something, I will cook something now that will be for three meals rather than just put enough in the oven for one meal. Penny, who lives alone in Queanbeyan near Canberra, says her friends are doing similar things too. They've all noticed higher power prices. So all of my friends, even my friends who have um, dual incomes, are struggling to make their electricity demands. Well, some of the ones um, that I've spoken to, particularly older women, are doing things like within their property, putting foil and cardboard on the windows to try and keep the cold out. With winter faster approaching and Queanbeyan prone to freezing temperatures, Penny's worried about the cost of putting a heater on. And news that electricity costs are set to rise even further isn't welcome. Makes me feel a bit afraid. (laughs) Makes me feel a bit concerned about, well, how is that then going to affect the quality of life and particularly health in terms of being able to keep the living space warm enough. The Australian Energy Regulator says it has to pass on heavy increases to the power price to pay for skyrocketing wholesale electricity prices as things like coal and gas get more expensive. For people in New South Wales, it means bills could jump by up to 18%. In southeast Queensland, it could be over 12%. And in South Australia, 9.5%. Small businesses could also pay an extra 13% for electricity. It's only going to exacerbate the stress for those households already struggling with the rising cost of living, in particular single-parent households, those on minimum wage, disability support payments and pensions. To hear today that we're going to see further rises in electricity costs are going to come to a blow for millions of people already struggling um, on low incomes. Kelly Court is from the Australian Council of Social Service. For people that are living um, below the poverty line, um, which is 3 million people in Australia, we're hearing people really struggling um, to put food on the table, to afford medicines and to be able to heat their home as the weather starts to cool down. And so does that mean people have to make really hard choices? Yeah, the the choices people will be making is whether they turn their heater on over winter or, or whether they put a meal on the table. Um, and they're not the choices that 
people should be making. Uniting Care Australia is another agency seeing its clients struggle. Its national director is Clowen Little. We know that we're moving into a flu season. We've got COVID still amongst us. And so we know that some of the social determinants of health um, are things like adequate heating uh, and cooling in in the winter and the summer, we're going to have people a lot sicker than they should be. And we're also talking about rising costs for small businesses. What sort of flow-on effect do you think that might have? Well, look, any rising cost for, for small business means that uh, the community will need to, to bear the, the brunt of that cost. Um, they'll need to pass those costs on. So any of those costs that are passed on to the consumer um, will end up uh, biting the, the family budget. So do you expect, you know, your organisation to really be you know, under the pump? Do you think you'll be able to meet all that need? I think that it is going to be very difficult for us to be able to provide the sorts of um, supports that we, we need to be providing uh, as the, the months go on. And the big fear is that rising electricity costs could even tip some households over the edge into homelessness. ACOS's Kelly Court is calling on governments to step in and help. Increasing income supports um, from that $46 a day to above the poverty line, so $70 a day. Um, we think that all state and territory governments should be looking at providing more adequate and responsive energy concessions for people. Um, and we've also been calling for federal and state governments to improve the energy efficiency and provide access to rooftop solar for low-income homeowners. That's Kelly Court from ACOS ending that report from Catherine Gregory and David Sparks. Our senior business correspondent Peter Ryan has been examining the energy regulators report. We spoke a short time ago. Peter, good afternoon. How long is this bill shock expected to continue? Well, good afternoon, Sally. The simple answer is that the Australian energy regulator doesn't know, given the forces at play. What the watchdog does know is that its default market offer is spiralling. That's the price cap on energy retailers to ensure consumers and businesses aren't gouged, but also to give energy retailers a chance to make a reasonable margin and to recover costs. For some, that's a matter of survival, given that a couple of energy retailers in the United Kingdom have gone onto the wall. The regulator, though, is confirming bill shock and a lot more pain to come. Prices for consumers in New South Wales, South East Queensland and South Australia set to rise as much as 8.2%. That's above inflation. But when you go state by state, you really see the anxiety. In New South Wales, for example, price spikes of 18.3%. For business, prices above inflation to rise as much as 13.5%. So, of course, this comes at a time when households and businesses are reeling from inflation and the surging cost of living. And, of course, this flies in the face of pledges from previous coalition governments that prices will be capped or even lower. And the message now is to shop around. And Peter, what are the big forces that are continuing to push prices higher? What's happening? Well, Sally, these forces over the last year have seen wholesale costs for retailers rise by 41% in New South Wales, almost 50% in Queensland and almost 12% in South Australia. The Australian Energy Regulator puts this down to price pressures from the war in Ukraine, higher coal and gas prices, unplanned outages at coal-fired power stations, extreme weather events on Australia's east coast, and also slower growth in new energy capacity. Now, this report was originally set to be released in March, but that delay has officially been put down to 
quote, extra time being needed to consider a range of factors and no political interference despite the perception. I spoke with Justin Oliver, a board member at the Australian Energy Regulator, who told me that jacking up prices was a tough decision. We're conscious that these are significant price increases. That's not a decision we made lightly. So our goal here is to set a price which is established as a safety net to protect consumers, but still allows retailers to recover their costs, but also give them room still to compete. So protecting the companies, but was there any discussion about doing more to protect consumers and also businesses? We certainly considered both those issues very, very carefully. Protecting customers is always our highest priority, but we don't want a situation, for example, where If we set the price too low, if we squeeze it too hard, retailers might be forced to exit the market. How long can consumers and businesses expect to be hit with these higher energy bills? Very difficult to say. Certainly global conditions are a key factor right now. And of course, some of those are events that are beyond anyone's control and events that we can't predict. The market is telling us that they think those high prices are going to continue. That's Justin Oliver, board member with the Australian Energy Regulator. He was speaking there to Peter Ryan. To the politics of the Pacific now, newly installed Foreign Minister Senator Penny Wong is travelling to Fiji today to bolster Australia's relationship with the Pacific. The journey comes as the Chinese Foreign Minister begins an eight-nation Pacific visit to secure a regional economic and security deal. Dr Tess Newton-Kane is project leader of the Pacific Hub at Griffith University. She says transparency is vital as China steps up its engagement. I think for me, Sally, one of the most important aspects is what we heard coming from the Media Association of Solomon Islands yesterday, which is about very strict limitations being put on media access to the Chinese foreign minister's visit and very strict limitations on who can be present at press events and who can ask questions. Um, It's really important that democratic space is held safe in Pacific Island countries. Journalists already face significant pressures on what they do when they play a crucial role in communicating what's happening to their communities. What do we know about the connections that are already there between the Pacific and China, especially person to person, minister to minister? How much back and forth has there been and how much time have the Pacific leaders spent in China? Well, again, the last couple of years has put a break on a lot of that travel, but we have seen leaders such as the Prime Minister of Vanuatu, the Prime Minister of Solomon Islands, the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea invited to China, where they are given a very warm welcome with you know, a great deal of ceremony, which is certainly something that the, both on the, Chi- the Chinese side makes a great deal of in terms of their public diplomacy. And it's also something that catches the attention of Pacific communities as well when they see their leaders being invited to, you know, a big country such as China and treated with, you know, with what looks like a great deal of respect. What do you think of Penny Wong's grasp of the Pacific? The things that I've heard her say, particularly the video that she prepared for the Pacific before leaving for Tokyo, indicate to me that she's been listening to some of the more, maybe the more subtle things. I think the tone of what she said, some of the messages were really important. She made a point of saying that her government or the Albanese government was listening to the Pacific, that they cared about what the Pacific had to say. She particularly said, she used a particular phrase which struck me, which which was, we want to stand shoulder to shoulder. 
And now that she's going to Fiji, this is her first opportunity to walk the talk as foreign minister. Now that we have Australia and China in competition in some sense for this relationship with the Pacific, how different is that from, say, 20, 20 years ago, the importance that's placed on the Pacific and what's that, what that is like for the, the Pacific nations? I think 20 years ago, Australia was, as is now, the most important relationship for a number of Pacific Island countries. But perhaps in the Australian imagination, in the Australian consciousness, the Pacific was, was very much um, invisible. It was, there was possibly a level of complacency. So what we've seen is a, you know, a significant ramp up in terms of the quantity of attention that's being paid to the Pacific. What we are starting to see and what we need to see a lot more of is an increase in the quality of that engagement. I feel there's still a lot of work to do on building what I've termed Pacific literacy here in Australia so that everybody, not just a few specialists at DFAT, but everybody just has a much better sense of where Australia sits and, and what that means, you know, where they sit in the region around them. That's Dr Tess Newton-Kane, project leader of the Pacific Hub at Griffith University. Right across the country, you're with us on The World Today. To the US now, and gun control advocates in the United States say the massacre of school children in Texas yesterday must put an end to policy inaction. 19 children and two teachers died in the shooting. Gun activists argue that their right to bear weapons is protected by the US Constitution, but the US President says that right isn't absolute and that common-sense gun laws could be introduced. Rachel Mealy reports. Again, it takes a tragedy. 19 children and two adults shot dead, and gun reform is back on the agenda. The idea that an 18-year-old can walk into a store and buy weapons of war designed and marketed to kill is, I think, just wrong. It just violates common sense. Gun-owning Americans cite the Second Amendment to the US Constitution when they object to any laws to limit sales or ownership of weapons. Today, President Biden was trying to put that under the spotlight. Second Amendment's not absolute. When it was passed, you couldn't own, you couldn't own a cannon. You couldn't own certain kinds of weapons. It's just always been limitations. But guess what? These actions we've taken before, they save lives. They can do it again. But while it may sound as though he's talking tough, the US president knows that without consensus in Congress, nothing much will change. President Biden has been here before when he was a senator and as vice president he pushed for gun control, but it all failed in the face of Republican opposition. Texas Senator Ted Cruz is already raising his voice. Don't have all of these unlocked back doors. Have one door into and out of the school and have that one door armed police officers at that door. If that had happened, if those federal grants had gone to this school, when that psychopath arrived, the armed police officers could have taken him out and we'd have 19 children and two teachers still alive. Gun control advocates are still holding out hope that this tragedy straightens the path towards law reform. David Hogg survived a shooting at his high school in Florida four years ago. It has to be. It just has to be different because I think 
Reality is the movement has been doing this work for decades. David Hogg is urging members of Congress to come together, no matter their political stripe, to make change. I want anything. We got to save lives now. Kids are dying right now. Uh, even if it just saves one life and it, because it's an updated background checks bill um, or an expansion of extremist protection orders or anything like that. I mean, look, this is democracy. You know, the, uh, this system is made to force us to compromise. He wants to see President Biden rise to the occasion. President Biden is not doing enough. Um, he is doing more than any president in American history, but it's equally possible to recognize if I'm a student and I'm getting a D, but the previous student was getting an F, that's still not doing great, right? I think President Biden can be getting an A right now, and we need him to be more of a leader on this issue. In Uvalde in Texas, Amory Joe Garza's father told CNN how he learned that his daughter was among the dead. I'm a med aide, so when I arrived on the scene, they still had kids inside. They started bringing the kids out, and I was aiding assistance. One little girl was just, just covered in blood, head to toe. Like, I thought she was injured. I asked her what was wrong, and she said she's okay. She was hysterical, saying that they shot her best friend, that they killed her best friend, and she's not breathing, and that she was trying to call the cops. And I asked the little girl the name, and she's <laughs> and she told me, hey, she said, hey, Marie. That's Angel Garza there, the father of one of the victims of the shooting, Amory Joe. Rachel Mealy with that report. Back home now, and today marks five years since a landmark moment in the Aboriginal rights movement, the Uluru Statement. Back in 2017, the statement was presented to the then Turnbull government, but after half a decade, little progress has been made on turning it into action. Now, many Indigenous groups have renewed optimism that the priorities of the statement may finally be implemented by the new Labor government. Political reporter Dana Morse reports. Five years ago, 250 Indigenous Australians met on Ananu lands in the Northern Territory with a clear goal in mind. The meeting resulted in the 440-word Uluru Statement from the Heart, a gift from Indigenous people to the country, calling for the federal government to take action on voice, treaty and truth with traditional owners. From the Heart campaign director, Dean Parkin, was there. The days leading up to that moment um, were some of the most intense political, cultural, uh, legal discussions that you could ever imagine by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I get goosebumps now just talking to you about it. Progress stalled under the Morrison government, but there's a new Prime Minister and Anthony Albanese has put the statement back on the agenda. Together we can embrace the Uluru Statement from the Heart. We can answer its patient, gracious call for a voice enshrined in our constitution. It's a breath of fresh air for those involved, including Uluru Statement signatory Thomas Mayer. Well, I was uh, actually jumping for joy. It's such a powerful thing and you can see it's been a long time, I think, since we've had a leader with that sort of courage and vision. The next step is advancing a constitutionally enshrined voice to Parliament, a change to the Constitution that would have to go to the Australian public. The statement authors have put forward May 26, 2023 as a preferred date, the anniversary of the 1967 referendum. But since Federation, only eight amendments to the Constitution have been successfully passed this way. Incoming Indigenous Affairs Minister Linda Burney says she won't rush to a vote that might not succeed. 
So now the government needs to work on getting bipartisan support. Thomas Mayer says that's a sensible position. You know, we don't want to see it fail either. Is that an indication that the authors of the Uluru Statement are potentially more flexible on dates for the referendum? Well, I think with the appropriate amount of resources and the right leadership, we can we can succeed in a year from now. The majority of Teal community independents back the government position and while the Greens want to see truth and treaty prioritised over a voice, they won't stand in the way. The real challenge comes from winning over the coalition who have said creating an Indigenous voice to Parliament would become a third chamber of government. But the president of the Law Institute, Tas Laveris, says that's not the case. There has been a lot of misinformation about that issue. The voice to Parliament, not a voice of Parliament that is enshrined in the Constitution, isn't a third chamber. And while it's not yet clear what powers the voice would have, Thomas Mayer says it's simple. It won't be powerless um, and it won't be a third chamber to Parliament. Uh, again, it's quite simple. The power of it is, is that it actually comes from regular consensus building from our people. It comes from truly elected representatives of Indigenous peoples rather than people that are self-nominated or people that the Prime Minister chooses to be the spokesperson for Indigenous people for the day. That's Uluru Statement signatory Thomas Mayer ending that report from Dana Morse. Finally today, for six years, forced participants in the controversial cashless debit card scheme have been fighting for it to be scrapped. Now, under a Labor government, the fight may soon be over. Isabel Masali reports. Sylvia Assasar has been living on the cashless debit card for years now, since it became compulsory for welfare recipients in her area, Kalgoorlie, a gold mining city in Western Australia. Most of a person's welfare payment goes onto a card that blocks certain purchases and you can't withdraw cash. It's made life tough for those forced to use it. It caused me a lot of problem that a lot of other people have had. Nobody actually tells you that it does work. There's no success stories. You know, everybody's read a story where somebody couldn't pay their rent or they couldn't access something they needed medical-wise or through the card. Its use is highly controversial and heavily politicised and the former government agreed to an independent evaluation. Professor Costas Mavramaris from the University of Adelaide ran this study. We had some consistent and clear evidence of a reduction in alcohol consumption, but we can't really say whether this is, this is not also influenced by other policies that were at the same time nudging the behaviour in that direction. On drugs, we couldn't find anything. On gambling, we found some short-term evidence of helping the reduction. Professor Mavramaris found most stakeholders and leaders in the communities actually want the scheme to continue, and it did help a minority of participants, but... A majority of people had negative feelings about feeling discriminated against, stigmatised, shame, fairness and embarrassment uh, because of being on the CDC. Very few positives. Thousands of people are still on the card in trials that have lasted years. Welfare recipient Catherine Wilkes has been leading a campaign to axe it, and it seems it will be, with Labor campaigning that it would abolish the card if elected and make the basics card voluntary. I'll be so relieved once it's gone completely. All those people get their lives back, they get their ability to make their own decisions back, they get their autonomy back. But they also get their privacy back and their dignity. Catherine Wilkes wants guarantees it won't happen again. The card needs to go. The legislation needs to be repealed. 
and it needs to be done in such a way that another government can't do this again to Australian citizens. People need to feel secure that this can't happen again. And we'd like to see some sort of investigation, even a Royal Commission. While Labor says the card doesn't work and plans to scrap it, incoming Indigenous Affairs Minister Linda Burney admitted earlier this month it could stay in some locations if there's strong community support for it. Ms Burney was approached for comment. The country Liberal Party's Jacinta Namajira-Price argues removing the card would be disastrous. I genuinely am very fearful of the idea that it could be scrapped altogether, especially when in the Northern Territory the new futures legislation is drawing to a close and, and that alcohol could be um, let allowed back in communities. That coupled with scrapping income management would be absolutely disastrous given we've got the, some of the highest rates of domestic and family violence, which is largely because of alcohol and substance abuse. Ultimately, I, I think it should be kept and that's what I'll be fighting for. That's the country Liberal Party's Jacinta Price there, Isabel Masali, reporting. That's all from the World Today team for this Thursday. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back again at the same time tomorrow. I'm Sally Sara. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Once again, America's in shock after a mass shooting, this time in a school in Texas that's left more than a dozen children and their teacher dead. Today we get the insights of a reporter who spoke to 12 mass shooters as he looked into what could have been done to stop them. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.